1: I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, Otiel Burbridge, The Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi, and I'm so excited about our guest today for episode two the rising bluegrass star, the one and only Mr. Billy Strings. I've been lucky to get to know Billy and play with him a bunch of times over these past few years. Including multiple distinguished tours of duty with the Bluegrass Generals. That is my side project with Andy Hall from the String Dusters, where we bring together players and writers, singers from across the Bluegrass and acoustic music spectrum to get together and learn each other's songs and make music. And we have Anchor the generals with a two-night run in Denver every year, but we've also made the rounds and gotten out to a few different festivals, and uh, it's been a great chance to get to know and jam with all kinds of just killer players from our from our world. And Billy was the mandolin player in his first tour of duty with the Cheese Guys. Billy and uh, Keith Mosley on bass. And then more recently, we had him this year playing guitar with Mimi from Fruition on Mandolin, just killing it, and my good buddy Mike Duvall from Green Sky on the bass. Such a great lineup. We had a really, really fun two-night run at Cervantes earlier this year, and we get together and we, we learn each other's songs, and we we let it fly and see what happens. Before we get rolling, I want to give a quick shout-out to my friends over at Diderio. I've teamed up with those guys to bring you the first few episodes of the podcast— They've been such huge supporters of the String Dusters throughout our career with all kinds of great gear. Cables, picks, tuners, capos, all that good stuff. And it really is good stuff. Whether you're an amateur or a professional, D'Addario is absolutely the best. These guys have been so good to us over the years. And they have a great new line of strings that have just hit the market. Not just for the acoustic instruments, mandolin, banjo guitar, but for electric instruments as well the XT strings, and I've got them on my banjo right now. And they're just a great blend of that brighter, more present tone that you look for in lighter strings with that thicker, warmer tone that you look for in heavier strings. And they're coated, but they don't feel coated. They last forever. The break strength is really, really good. And they're available for a wide range of instruments, not just the acoustic instruments. So check them out. Okay, let's jump into a little string duster Q&A. I saw a lot of people asking about the jams. They want to know how the jams come about, how planned they are, and just how that whole thing evolves on stage, Uh, how much rehearsal goes into that. And I have to say, of all the things that the Dusters have learned how to do over the years, this is something that we've really had to learn on the fly. That is, on stage. It's really hard to rehearse a jam. You can plan how the jam is supposed to go and maybe have some tricks to kind of get in or get out of it, but what happens in that space is really something that can't be done without an audience. And so you have a plan and you know that it's coming, but you really have No idea what's gonna happen and that's that's the fun part that's the fun part for us and that's the the fun part for the audience so just to kind of zoom out a little bit for the uninitiated the jams are those times on stage when we launch into the void together and create something totally spontaneous on stage picking what songs have that space in them is is the first part of the process and you know not every song is is tailor-made for this but typically if songs have you know some element of a journey in them they, they have to call for it musically so like for us you know black elk or no more to leave you behind songs like that they just have something in them some epic journey that really calls for this musical element and it fits the song now not every song is going to have a perfect setup as far as the lyrics go but you know musically speaking the jam has to play a role it has to be part of the music it has to deliver you to that last epic chorus or take you on a journey all its own within the song there Um, so once we sort of figure that part out Then it's on to, you know, how do we get in and out of this thing? And usually a jam has one or two guys that are leading the charge. Like, for example, G-Grass's fiddle solo on Sirens. So that person or those pickers... They set the tone and they start to take us somewhere. And then a lot of jams will have um, something sort of in a like a midway point. For example, Cloud Valley, and we listen for Andy to cue the minor chord on the dobro, and then a whole new vibe sets in, and we follow that and see where that takes us. Or like for example, in Sirens, when we go to bluegrass double time, or in Love Light, when Falco starts to imply that tension, we follow him on one of those big kind of tension and release builds. And you've got this midway point in the jam that sort of takes everything up a step and perhaps in a new direction. And then from there, you know, you're you're kind of on the home stretch. And sometimes that can include a tease, like we've got Bathtub Gin in, in Home of the Red Fox, or lately we've been doing the... Ruben and Charisse jam at the end of planets and so you're you're looking for this thing but you don't necessarily know where it's going to come but that's where the cues come in and typically for those midpoint pieces of the jam it's a musical cue and you're listening for this thing that you know is going to come and then you sort of get on that vibe with whoever's leading the charge and it delivers you to the next zone and then you're kind of on the home stretch and I would say most of the time, the finishing moves for these jams, you're actually looking for a visual cue. So like for example on Sirens, Shegrass is shredding, taking it to the hoop, we're following him there, and then when we're at the peak of the jam, we're looking for that cue, that's gonna signify the end of the jam, take us back to the melody. That's such a key aspect of the jam is for the soloist, for the leader, or leaders, to feel it out and to be in tune with the music and to know. Okay, here we are at the high point. It's time make the cue. Boom into that last chorus, and there we go. Now, getting back to that question of rehearsal, the cues and the devices that we use to kind of get from one place to another, will rehearse those. And if we're in sound check and we're dusting something off that we haven't played for a while. We'll go over the cues, but the actual musical part, the journey, the things that happen on your way from point A to point B, that's all on the fly. And that is one of the most fun parts of the show every night for me, I know, and I think for my bandmates as well. It's Even if you're not the soloist, it's just an exciting moment in the show where, you know, as a role player, like, So, for example, on the banjo, you know, finding rhythm parts that support that lead part and really being open to the point where it can be something completely different every night. And we'll reference that classic fish world terminology, type one and type two. A type one jam is sort of. Just a, a long solo, I would say, something that stays within the vibe or the chords of the tune. And then a type 2 jam is where you completely leave the initial structure that you started in and you go to completely new places, new chords, new tempos, melodies, all that good stuff. And then you've got to figure out how to get back home. And one last part of this whole jam puzzle, a really important part, is the debrief. And I love this. You know, after a show, we just get to hang and put our heads together and compare notes and say, oh, that one was killing or that one didn't really hit. But ultimately, in some way, you guys kind of get to decide. And when a jam clicks and makes sense and is good musically and fits with the song, the crowd reaction is. Undeniable. And, you know, that's why you can't rehearse these things. That's why you got to really take them out and road test them and see what's up. And then in that process of sharing ideas and feedback with with your people who you make music with, that's that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where the music evolves and becomes what it ultimately will be, uh, and that's really one of the most fun parts of being in a band for me, is taking that process on with my String Duster brothers. Like I said last time, I'll have to compile a list at some point of successes and failures in that realm, because there have certainly been many examples of both. Okay, now that we're done nerding out on Duster stuff, I want to get to this interview. If you haven't heard of Billy's Strings... You have been hiding under a rock these last few years. Um, This guy's everywhere, and he deserves to be. He's a total shredder, but more importantly, he's a really soulful cat, and he's wise beyond his years, and he really brings a lot to the table musically. You know, there's conversation sort of ongoing in and around bluegrass and the jam grass world, for lack of a better term. I don't don't love that term, but um, it does mean something and people often ponder this idea of what is bluegrass and how connected to traditional bluegrass should or can these more modern forms of the music be and in this case you got a guy who really knows his traditional stuff he can pick and sing trad grass with the best of them and i think that that is a big reason why people are so drawn to his music because bluegrass say what you will about it there is a lot of sort of art of imitation but the music especially in its original forms you know flattened scruggs bill monroe and then on to all these heavy second generation cats from tony rice baila fleck sam bush jerry douglas and great bands like the seldom scene, the music is deep and at its core bluegrass just has this amazing foundational solid bass and people really connect to it the amazing harmonies and of course just the virtuosic playing and it's daunting to be a bluegrass guy sometimes i remember when i was living in nashville it's like the guy who delivered your mail could play five instruments better than you could play your main instrument and that's just the way bluegrass people take it on, um, you know, especially when they look back at those founding fathers of bluegrass. Man, the music is just so good. And I think when you mix that with the kind of mojo that a guy like Billy brings to the table, songwriting, a modern sensibility about where the music can go, all the jamming, and then, of course, the live presentation lights and all that stuff, you have something that is really appealing. And the results don't lie. People are coming out to these shows and they are excited about the music. And when it comes to bluegrass and the future of bluegrass and the evolution of the music, and I've definitely spoken out on this topic in my writing and my involvement with IBMA, I believe really strongly that bluegrass will live on because of the evolution that's happening through the vision of musicians like Billy Strings people go back and forth endlessly about what is bluegrass and what role does traditional bluegrass play in more modern forms and Billy has truly got it all it's trad level chops and incredible singing combined with a super modern sensibility if you haven't heard Billy's strings yet you're sure to hear them soon so let's do this onward to my conversation with the strings. Time to turn the wheel around. all right we are here in las vegas nevada oh, i'm so psyched to be joined by my guest today who is an amazing flat picker singer fronting one of the hottest bands out there today and also a good buddy billy strings welcome to the podcast
0: thanks for having me chris glad to be here
1: so i i love to get started by just talking about what what was the advent of your whole musical journey i know from reading you know that you've got a lot of music in your family and your dad is a big bluegrass guy but was there a time when like you really knew that you were hooked in on a level where you were going to put all your energy your life into writing songs spreading your music making a career as a musician
0: i think that uh you know the making a career part of it kind of came later um but early on it was just a sort of a way of life you know I I played music with my dad and um he just played all the time and he would play records all the time and um
1: so like from when you were uh as early as you can remember since
0: I was a baby Yeah, yeah. yeah and you know by the time I was four years old I knew who Doc Watson was and Bill Monroe and you know those guys and 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 I knew that stuff, but mostly I knew the tunes. You know, I I knew how Mountain Girls Can Love, and I knew Riding on That Midnight Train, and Beaumont Rag, and and Black Mountain Rag, and and tunes like that. From hearing my dad play them with his friend Brad Lasko, who was a banjo player, right? And the first banjo player who I ever um, heard, and first, you know, the first time I ever heard anybody play bluegrass banjo in person, it was Brad, and he was like. I called him my uncle Brad, and that's how tight he was with my dad. And they sang together really well, and they played together really well.
1: And this is all up in Michigan, right? Yeah. And so, was your was your dad's thing pretty much all bluegrass folk? Like, what was what yeah. was the expanse of his musical territory? Mostly,
0: when he would play with Brad Lasco and stuff, it was a lot of bluegrass, a lot of Stanley Brothers, Doc Watson stuff, and Bill Monroe stuff, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs. Um, but my dad is also very well versed in, uh, what can you say? He grew up in the seventies, man. So, you know, everything from Hendrix to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and, and Black Sabbath and stuff like that. Like he's really well versed in all that stuff and he knows all that repertoire really well. Like he can, he can play Beatles songs and he can play, uh, Hendrix on the electric guitar and all this stuff. Um, so I'm kind of a lot like him in a way. And at least that's kind of how I think it. I mean, he's a hardcore Doc Watson freak, but he also loves Hendrix, you know. And he had long hair at one point and was kind of a hippie, but he also loved, you know, Bill Monroe and the
1: Grand Ole Opry and, you know. And that was most of the music that you guys played was pretty bluegrass centric.
0: Yeah, I think when I was growing up, I I didn't get interested in the Beatles and, and and the rock and roll stuff until later on. Gotcha. Later on being when I was like in, you know, elementary school like uh you know, 10 years old or something. That's when I, he bought me a little pig nose amp and a miniature Squire Strat. And that's when I learned how to bend the strings a little bit. And then I started getting into Jimi Hendrix. We had this VHS tape of Hendrix at Woodstock and I just watched it all the time. Um,
1: and your dad, you, you, you can hear Billy's dad on these memories of you, right? On right. Terminal and Tinfoil?
0: Yeah, that's him singing on there with me.
1: Um. Yeah, I love that, man. I mean, it's it's deep you can hear You can hear a lot, a lot of, uh, the roots of your sound and also just your dad. And I've heard you pick with your dad. I can't remember where a few festivals or whatever, but he's, he's just pure soul. It seems like.
0: Yeah. And I, I really think it's like something that I don't see a lot anymore. People that when they sing a song, they fully devote themselves to it. And they, f- right. I mean, that's what my dad does. And that's what I try to do when, you know, and I learned it from him, you know. But I mean, he le- he grew up listening to Mac Wiseman and Jimmy Martin and powerful singers, you know, Larry Sparks. Yeah. Um, and so, like, when he sings a song, he really gives it his all uh, as far as trying to sing it good and sing it right. But emotionally, he gives yeah. it everything he has and he tries to um emote the emotion I don't, unconsciously he's doing all of this but man he doesn't sing a song just to get through it and go through the motions when he sings a song he really means it you know yeah. and he cares about the song and maybe it reminds him of his mother or something like that but it's very like a sentimental thing to him and you can just tell by the way he's singing it you know
1: well he has clearly passed that on to you and i know that you know probably a lot of a lot of our listeners have already checked your stuff out but for those who haven't i just really appreciate that about what you do and have always noticed that in your playing it's just it's got all the technical elements the tone timing all that stuff but what really shines through is is the soul factor
0: you know i've always sort of had like this fire under my ass about it you know i, I just i've always just loved playing but one huge moment for me was you know like uh with Sam Bush he kind of he gave me this lesson without saying a word one time, and it was one of the first times I ever had the opportunity to step on stage with Sam. And I was, you know, probably like 21 years old, and uh, and it was this big bluegrass jam, and you know, I went up to the front and I took my little solo or whatever. Then I circled around way to the back of the stage, and I figured, well, I did my break, and you know, I'm not anywhere near a microphone. I'm gonna lean over and have a drink of my beer, and. Right when I did that, I looked over and Sam Bush was sitting right next to me and his eyes were closed and he was playing the shit out of this song, the rhythm, just chopping the hell out of it, giving the song every single ounce of energy that he had for the sake of the song. And I felt like such a child for literally stopping playing and taking a drink of beer for a minute when it's like... Dude, we're playing a song right now. Like, right. you know, are you not gonna at least give the song like a hundred, like you your full attention? Yeah. Like, what? What makes you think you can just stop? You know. God and bless that was, Sam Bush. I know, and he didn't <laughs> have to say a word, and yeah. it was like, oh, okay. Like when you go into a song, you know, give it respect.
1: You know, that's that's amazing because we reminisce about that Sam Bush factor too, and when he did. Bluegrass Generals, which um, we've had Billy for uh, an early installment of Bluegrass Generals on mandolin and, and coming up again here in late April um, on the guitar. I'm so psyched for that, man. Yeah, can't, I can't wait. Can't That's wait for fun. that. Um, but when we had Sam, I'll never forget. We were sitting backstage at Cervantes, you know, no windows. It's like 2 p.m., hours till the show, and we're running over tunes. And I look over and the dude is like headbanging you know 3 feet away from me <laughs> you know like playing run, running through a full songs on. he's probably played a million times but that and and he's another great example of just the full commitment factor and you know once the music starts like i say like in a world where people can get i think overly concerned with the technique it's just like here we go shut that off dig in and just commit yeah, to the thing just and do go.
0: it you know it's kind of It's crazy too, you know, it's like sometimes you walk off stage and you have one of those nights where you feel like you're just kind of, sometimes you feel like you really have to force it or sometimes it just comes really easy and on those days you're like, man, what were we so afraid of, you know, like, uh, you know.
1: So what, what do you think that is on those days when it's a little more of a grind? I mean, what, what amounts to that?
0: I think it's just a mental thing. It's just like, it's hard to get to that spot where you walk on stage and it's just like everything's fine. Me, I guess I get a little like nervous or worked up before a show, you know, like, oh, everything's good. we got to make sure the set list is just right and this and that and, you know. And usually the shows that are the best for me is when I'm not like that. When I'm just like, oh, whatever, yeah, let's just put that song there. That'll be great. And then you go up there and you kind of have the same mood like that and it's like, yeah, let's just just go up there and do your thing and do the best that you can absolutely possibly do and that that you know will be great
1: i read i read in an interview you quoted colonel bruce hampton saying something like take the music seriously but don't take yourself too seriously yeah totally and i i just dig that on so many levels cuz that speaks to that same thing of like we're so committed to the music obviously but to take ourselves too seriously, that sort of like prevents you from being all the way in the moment with, you know, your bandmates and probably more importantly, the audience, you know, and on those days when it flows, man, it's just like, yeah, why is this so easy today? Yeah. (laughs) What was
0: I so worried about every other time? Right. Exactly. It's like, we can, we can do this, but you know, um, all those huge moments like that, you know, that moment with Sam, all the moments with my dad growing up, the first time I ever uh, played Beaumont rag correctly and my dad just busted out laughing and reached over and squeezed my little hand with my pick in it, you know, and I'll never forget those moments and, and those, those are what, what drive me and keep me going, you know, and, and uh, I think just being around my dad when I was young, seeing him singing and playing and, you know, he never was like a professional player. These are just around the campfire Um, Or in my kitchen when we have friends over. My parents, you know, they'd be smoking and drinking and playing music and just having, you know, friends and family and uh, good times, you know. And I would notice, I remember noticing when I was very young, just pretty much the joy that my father brought to those parties. And people would sing along and people would, you know, jam out. And they would just love the music. And my dad was just sitting there singing his ass off. And, um... I'll never forget that just how that how I, you know, felt back then and and what those parties were like and and how that made me do what I do now. It's like he brought so much joy to those those little parties that it was just like, man, my dad is so cool. Like Ugh. everybody thinks he's so cool. Like I want I want to do what my dad does. Yeah. It, and it was never pushed on me by my parents or anything. It was never like, you know, you should play or anything. It was like, no, I want to learn how to play because my dad is freaking awesome. That's so know?
1: that's so pure. I love that, you know, and you're lucky. I know, That's yeah. awesome. A Man. lot of
0: people, I'm sure, like, you know, if their dad is whatever they do, I mean, I think a lot of times we want to break the mold, and a lot of times maybe if your dad was, a you know, a car salesman or something, you'd say, hell no, I don't want to do that. I want to do you know i want to be a musician or something (laughs) well
1: there's also something really cool about the fact that he it wasn't necessarily his career yeah you know and the idea that you came to it in sort of that classic like bluegrass kind of oral tradition way and it wasn't about making a living it was just about going all in and and the joy and what is a city without its music you know and the music the words the songs and just yeah it, lett- was, letting them it have was about a life. that
0: it was about the music you know we worship Bill Monroe and Doc Watson around my house when I was growing up you know we these guys are larger than life to us you yeah. know they're the songs and the way those records sound you know and just I would sit there with my dad when I was a little kid in our underwear and like listen to records you know I'll never forget some of the stuff that he showed me you know when I was I mean, I remember exactly the day that I first learned about David Grisman. And it was like a thing. You know, my dad was like, called me from across the house, you know, and I thought I was in trouble. He's like, get in here. (laughs) And, you know, I was like, what? And he's like, sit down, you know. And I'm like, okay. And he shuts the door behind me. And I'm like, what did I do? (laughs) And he pulls out Doc and Dog. And he's like, this is David Grisman. You need to know this guy. And he, like, plays the record for me. And is like, listen to this mandolin. Cause he had just gotten a mandolin from you know for a, a birthday present from his sister Julie, so he was all geeking out on mandolin. So that's love when he that. showed me David Grisman, you know. And then um, he did the same thing with Black Sabbath when I was a little older. When I was old enough to hear that first Black Sabbath record, he sat me down and showed it to me on his big freaking Altec Lansing speakers, loud as hell, you know. And it scared the shit out of me. I love that. Um, but he showed me Johnny Winter. I remember when he showed me King Crimson. Um and, and and all the bluegrass stuff I learned from just hearing those records, but like I said a lot f- by hearing my dad sing those songs. All the Doc Watson stuff I learned through my dad, you know. My dad singing Doc's repertoire, that's how I learned all that shit.
1: You're you're doing such a great job of taking all that more soulful side of bluegrass and pumping it into to what you guys are doing. It's awesome, man. Really, Thanks, man. I, I really appreciate that. that.
0: You know, I feel like a lot of the time, uh, you know, what I guess I'm like most like complimented on or whatever is just like the fast, like headbanging, crazy shit. And I have been thinking lately that you know it's like, man, I I used to sort of do more slow, kind of heavy singing songs. Like, you know, Dave Evans is another guy I should mention. Oh, yeah. Um. And. As far as like keeping that stuff in my set and in my um, music, I think you'll always hear it in there because I just feel like you know that's that's a huge part for me to 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 give credit where credit's due um, with Doc Watson and and Bill Monroe and and people like that. So as much original music as I write, and that comes from a lot of different influences. I try to just get out of my own way uh, when I write stuff and you know i don't try to write a bluegrass song or a folk song or anything i just try to write songs but no matter what when i'm playing live i'll always put you know black mountain rag or how mountain girls can love or you know you'll hear some classic stuff in there
1: always well and that's why you know the question about bluegrass just comes up all the time these days you know what is bluegrass and where is it headed and i i always say that The evolution is the thing that's going to keep the music alive. You know, if all it ever is is the art of imitation, then it's going to really kind of die on the vine. But that's why it's so great to have cats like you on the scene who are writing your own stuff and, you know, who are into Johnny Winter and Black Sabbath, but also play Beaumont Rag. And I think that's lost on traditionalists a little bit. Um just because they're stricter in their view, but, you know... Yeah, you're... as
0: soon as they see that I plugged my guitar in, they uh, turn away.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> you are know, lost. I, that, yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, you know. But it doesn't bother me at all, and I, I, I do think that, you know, um, it's it's growing. There's a lot of young people out there that are picking up the mandolin or yeah. the banjo or the fiddle, and... and um, it's really cool how that happens, you know? You see people come in from the other side. I mean, I learned about the Grateful Dead through bluegrass. I right. learned you know, first I knew bluegrass, then I knew David Grisman, then I learned that he played in Olden and the Way with yep. Jerry, then I learned about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And like a lot of people are are deadheads and they like Jerry Garcia played in a bluegrass band and then, whoa, this is cool. What's bluegrass? And then they learn about Earl Scruggs, you know, and then it's like
1: Well, kinda- and that's and that that too is such a key Part of why what guys like you are doing is so crucial to bluegrass is because you know I think if you're doing your thing well, it will open the door for your fans to look back and discover who Earl Scruggs is, who who Bill Monroe is, and that's a lot of injecting a lot of vitality into that older stuff. You know, whether it's totally present in what you do or not, you know, it's clearly an element of the show, but um, but man, that's such a key part of what's going on here, you know? Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you about, um, it's interesting. So you guys have, how long have you guys been touring in your current iteration, your band?
0: Probably about, uh, two years or maybe two and a half years. Yeah.
1: Cause it's, it's so interesting, you know, the dusters we've been on the road for, um, you know, 11 years. And when we got going, you know, this. there was no bender jamboree. There was no strings and soul. You know, Telluride bluegrass was kind of the only game in town. But it's amazing to see how much has changed and, you know, how sort of fertile the bluegrass or whatever you want to call it, jam grass acoustic scene is. But you guys have, you know, sort of picked up the torch and really started to run with it. But do you, I mean, you know, when you were sort of getting into the music when you were younger, you know, what, these events weren't really going on. and No,
0: the events that I attended were maybe three or 400 people. There was campers. Um, none of us ever made it to the main stage to see the band because we were out by somebody's motorhome picking all right, night.
1: Right, right, right.
0: And I honestly, I had no idea that this was a thing. I knew who you guys were, you know, and I knew who Green Sky was. Um, let's see, what year is this? I'm talking about 2011. 2010 i was still very oblivious yeah completely oblivious to any progressive bluegrass scene i you know my idea of bluegrass was flat and scruggs and my idea of a festival was uh charlotte bluegrass festival in michigan where it's you know like i said very old school we're picking out in the campground and um it's just an old school traditional festival and i moved up to traverse city uh from ionia michigan where i lived and when I moved to Traverse City, I, you know, I didn't have any friends right away. So I developed this new sort of group of friends. And these f- friends listened to String Cheese Incident and and the String Dusters and Green Sky and, and Yonder. Yep. And I was like, you know, I kind of, at first I was like, what is this shit you guys are listening to? You know, it's like, I heard Yonder and I was like, this is bluegrass. Like, this is cool. Like, you know. But this is like I can tell it's like a newer like young guys yeah
1: so and- so fast forward a few years and now you guys get your thing going and I'm just curious like how how conscious you know is the the creation process around your guys' music are you just sort of taking everything with a blank slate or do you try and uh, adopt you know elements of the bands that that you hear and and how is how is all that structured you know when you guys are going into a show writing a set list um, how much do you think about all that
0: um, everything I've done up until this point has taught me how to put on my show and I've learned things from you guys I've learned picked up things from green sky picked up you know every time I'm anywhere working with anybody who's further ahead of on the road, you know, just up ahead of me. I I just learn from everybody that I can, and I don't take any of that for granted, you know. like uh, I think spending time with Green Sky taught me about crafting a set list and really caring about that instead of just saying, okay, we got 75 minutes, that's about 11 songs, you know, however many songs or whatever. Each night, you know, when I was on tour opening for those guys, I realized how much time they spent on what are we going to do tonight to make tonight special Yeah. to make the folks that came to the show tonight, what are we going to do there to blow their minds? And I never even like, you know, I never even thought about that before really. It was like, okay, these we have a list of 25 songs or whatever, and we're going to play these 10 tonight. Right. And
1: so what's know. it process wise, what's it like for you guys? So you, you play a show, how much do you kind of download with each other? Looking back over the show saying, you know, these things went well, these things weren't as successful and then letting that all sort of play into future shows. What does that process look like for you guys? Um,
0: It's not like a it's not like a drill or anything. Uh, I have tried to maybe present the possibility of, hey, let's maybe before the gig, let's get together and talk about the show. And I've seen you guys do that. Yeah. You sure. know, and I, I literally, I've, I've, I've like used that as, as an example. I've like said to the band, like, dude, like, you know, if we want to get good like the String Dusters, we got to fucking run our tunes before the show, <laughs> you know, or something, or like at least talk about it, talk yeah. about the transitions, yeah, you know, like because I got this weird idea. Okay, we're gonna go from this song to that song, but then we're gonna switch keys, and we got to, you know, and it's easy to come up with an idea, but everybody's got to be on board, so. Um
1: so then does some of those ideas sort of make their way into the repertoire more long term like this transition if it's but, good yeah exactly if it
0: if it goes off and you know we do one song into another and it like felt really good we might do that again sometime yeah. that that same transition but sometimes you know we just especially if the songs are in the same key or, or if it's easy like going from E to A or something or um we have we do have little tricks that we've um, kind of come up with as far as like if we're playing a song in E or in in one uh, chord, you know, then we have a way that we can get to A. So that means not just uh, Pyramid Country into Little Maggie or whatever, but any song that's in E into any song that's in A. So sometimes we have these little, um, you know, little things like that. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, so I- we, we have that E to A transition. Right. So yeah, let's do that. We could do that uh, because. We just came out of a song that's an E. Oh yeah, what if we did that thing there and then we go into A? And then oh yeah, we, you know, and it's like okay. And you, yeah. The more shows we play, the more kind of those things naturally happen. Um, but to be honest, like I want to get into that stuff more. I want to practice more with the band, and I want to talk more about that stuff. And I, mm, it's a it's a double edged sword to sort of. You know, I'm not sure if it's healthy or harmful to to critique the show after. Because sometimes, you know, it's just a thing. Like, sometimes I feel like, man, that was a great show. But somebody else in the band was like, oh, I just had a rough night. And then the very next night, I'm going, shit, I just couldn't play tonight. Right. And everybody else was like, man, that was great. Yeah, And I'm just like, it's never like, we're never all on at the same time, I don't think. And that's what I want to try to do is like, figure out where we can turn screws to where all of our lights are shining while we're on stage, all four of us at the same time, you know, because a lot of times it seems like that. And it might just be like, you know, one person's literally just tired that day or one, you know, or whatever. But like, for some reason, it does seem like every, it's only every once in a while when all four of us were just like on fire. yeah. And, and that's what makes it fun. And to play so many gigs, it's like, okay, like, Tonight this happened, but we got tomorrow night to
1: try and get them again. Well, and also to approach the music in a way, like you say, where every night you take chances. And that's, to me, that's such a big part of where bluegrass and the world that we're a part of is headed. You know, it takes all these things, this really soulful, but also technical music, and then just opens it up, you know. And it's a high-risk High reward situation. I think
0: it's a beautiful thing. We're already vulnerable just playing banjos and guitars and nothing else. You know, we can't, we're not hiding behind anything. Uh, you know, what you hear is what we're actually playing. Yeah. And, um, you know, nothing against any other artists out there that make any music on any platform. But um, it's acoustic, man. We could play this right here in this hotel room, like, you know, and... uh and i think that's already a vulnerable thing and then to to put yourself into an even more vulnerable p- position by just treading off into uncharted sonic territory you yeah. know that's a it makes it really fun and then what i think that does is you know the classic kind of jam band thing that closes the gap between us and the audience we're just as excited about what the, is happening mus- musically as as the audience you know like
1: Right, it's as it, much for you guys as yeah, it is for them.
0: especially if we walk off on, on this limb and, you know, and it doesn't break and we pull it off altogether and somehow we made it to the finish line of this jam and uh, and everybody was there on their tippy toes waiting for this thing to happen and so were we and, right. you know, it's like it's just this amazing thing, amazing thing that happens where we're just as excited as the audience about what's going on and we're just as like we don't even know what's going to happen, you know?
1: And that's such a defining part to me of, you know, our music scene. It's not about album sales. It's not about hype. It's just all about the music. Yeah. And I think when you play, you know, a hundred shows a year or whatever a, a band like you guys does, something like that, you know, to keep people coming back because the fans that are on our scene they don't come to, you know, one or two shows a year, they're going to come to 10 or more, you know. Yeah, and, sometimes the whole tour, you know. And so when you give them when you give them this thing that's like, okay, we saw something really unique tonight, then boom, that just opens the door for them to keep coming back. Totally. You know, and you guys are doing you guys are doing that, man. I hear yeah, it. Yeah,
0: it's a I definitely think, you know, like every time we um, get into the studio or you know when i'm writing or anything it's like i i just think our strong suit is just being on stage you know yeah. it's like yeah we can try to make records and um do whatever we do but our thing is performing and and it's like that's a really good thing because we're a band
1: you know well and it also allows you to really kind of control your own destiny you know it's not a lottery ticket like i say it's not a hype thing it's like the fans that come in the door to see you guys they're in. You know, most of them are going to become real fans and try and consume what you do and and get on board for that unknown thing. You know, I remember so clearly when we Falco was opening a show for Mo Solo and he they were like, "Yeah, come to our, you know, production meeting an hour before the show." And then he came back to Duster's tour a week later and said, "You know, what if we got together and actually talked about the show and it's funny looking back because now it's like so essential you know and guiding us in terms of just trying to be on the same page and then through that process you develop all these little tools all these little devices like you're saying you know it could be just going from e to a or some consonant chord change or rhythmic things or you know like for us when we change tempos going to a certain like downbeat heavy feel, so that people can really get together but, so
0: that you all know where the tempo's heading, yeah. Yeah. And, and everybody's together, yeah. And
1: now it's just funny cuz that's become just critical. And that's, you know, that's the cool thing about being in a band that plays 100 shows a year. You have this practicing ground, you know, and you just get to take your thing out there and do it. I want to switch gears for a second. I want you to tell me a little bit about a song from your last record. Tell me tell me about this track spinning cuz hmm. for those of you who haven't checked it out first of all you you have to check it out but this is a spoken word track and i know you've referenced tom waits and i picked that up right away cuz it's, it's like the sound effects thing in the background which yeah. i love and it's it's all about a DMT trip is that right it's uh
0: it is literally me just explaining a psychedelic experience that i had yes it's oh, it, that's God it God bless you billy strange that's all it is
1: <laughs> there's and, no uh There's no spoken word DMT on, on, you know, the latest third time out record. (laughs) But that's what, um, that's what that's what guys like this are for. I've had So cool, man. I I, I just love that you went there.
0: uh, Yeah. When I when I first put out the record, Anders Beck called me and said the same thing. He was like, you know, you're so fucking brave. And I just I fucking love you so much. Like, and I was just like thanks, man. And I, you know, and then other people kind of said the same thing. And really what it was is I, w- I really wanted to have some kind of interlude spoken word, just weird thing. And, um, then I just had the idea, you know, because so many times I've sat with my friends and tried to explain, um, this beautiful, enlightening experience that I've had. Uh, it happened twice. I had two of, you know, this happened twice in my life with psychedelics where. I just had these amazing, enlightening moments that I... Now I just felt like I had to share. I wish everybody could maybe feel how how I felt, like everything is connected, like we're all part of this same thing, you know, like everything is all part of this big, beautiful, living, spinning, yeah. working thing, and we're all a part of that, and we need to act like it, you know, and not pretend like we're uh, separate from that. Sure thing. And so i just feel like maybe people sometimes are you know we're walking backwards in a way as far as we're getting out of touch with nature and out of touch with what it really is as far as just to exist yeah um and um so that's why i put it on the record is because i felt like it was a very important thing for me it changed who who i am it changed me for the better i used to be a it's just a worse person. I don't know. I just was more immature. I cared less about things that are important. You know, I had less love in my heart before these, um, enlightening experiences. And then, so I just felt like I had to share and, um, I'm not on any record label who you know, would have prevented me from doing that, or right. you know, I'm no nobody's there to say. Oh, I don't know. That's kind of risky, man. You might lose a couple fans if you tell them you smoke DMT. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I I commend you for that, man, because <laughs> I think a lot of those things. And there is a there is this sort of mainstream, not mainstream per se, but more mainstream thing going on around psychedelics. And there was you know that really popular book this past year, the Michael Pollan book about. You know, sort of a beginner's guide, and you know I've had some of those experiences myself, and I think if we can tap into something that connects us more with each other what what a powerful, enlightening thing sort of on a macro scale, and I think that the whole trick of it is that it's just been so stigmatized over the years, so oh absolutely, I a, mean, a thing like this spinning you know it just opens the door for people to. Try things, be more open about them, and um, yeah, I, I know. I Yeah, said it, and
0: but- my my intention is not to persuade anybody to try any substance ever. Um, but I just really wanted to share the message that I received. Is all well, and it
1: know? doesn't, you know. And I think part of part of the the sort of growing consciousness around all of that is that. It doesn't have to be a substance. It yeah. doesn't have to be anything you specific. You could go out
0: on a hike, you know, and go backpack for the weekend and you'll get the same thing. Yeah, meditating,
1: know? there's there's a lot of doors that can open in front of us that like I say can just allow us to connect more with other people and if that's man, I can't think of any higher calling in terms of a message to give to people. Just this thing is out there and like I say it doesn't have to be any one specific thing it's just um, an open mind you know an open heart and just more of a connection to your fellow people because that seems like it's kind of under attack we we need that yeah
0: Yeah, it's we definitely need that and you know um, we made the entire record already and I just felt like we just need one more thing we need like something different, not a song, not a tune. We need, like, a poem. We need, like, a... a John Hartford is another um, Oh yeah. example of, you know, on his early stuff, Earth Words um, and the Love album, there's a couple spoken word tracks on those where he's just sitting there talking, like, I love life, and I just want to sit here and talk straight to you, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I just love those tracks. So that was sort of my intention, was I wanted to do something like that. Um, but once I recorded it, I recorded it just on my computer and, you know, I was like smoking a bowl and just jiggling my keys and put, (laughs) put, just making weird sounds. And, you know, I had this like ear trumpet microphone with like a bunch of reverb on it and I was just like tapping on the screen and making those, those weird sounds and everything. And I was just, I just did that. And I just like, I sent it to our producer Glenn And he was like oh this sounds great the track's a little gritty let me see if i can clean it up but this is cool man and so you know that's the only track i've ever like engineered or anything too and i just sent it and i was like man what do you think about this can we put it on the album and he was like oh yeah this is wild and so that's what you know i love glenn for that you know he's like yeah this is crazy far out man yeah you know
1: well good work man i i love the originality and you know hartford another great example just Soul factor X, you know, like these guys that you're referencing and and you're doing a great job of incorporating all that into something that is really soulful and deep, really all your own, and um yeah, man, I'm a big fan um uh thanks, man, this has been super cool hanging and talking today, and I can't wait to see you guys play tonight, right, yeah, um and We've got bluegrass generals coming up, um, and I'm just excited for you, man. Excited to see what what lays ahead, and um, you know, you got a great band cooking, and you're sort of right in the center of this scene, um, and and just killing it, man. So thanks, man. Congrats. Yeah, we're just
0: uh, trying to keep it between the lines,
1: and you know, just trying to do good. Yep, yep. Um, well, Billy Strings, thank you so much for joining me today and um everyone go check billy out when he comes to a town near you he's he's absolutely killing it thanks so much man
0: thanks for having me man i appreciate it absolutely
1: that does it for episode two of inside the musician's brain thank you all so much for tuning in you can subscribe through apple podcasts and be sure to check back with us in two weeks for episode three, where I sit down to chat with mandolin and songwriting luminary, Sierra Hall. Inside the Musician's Brain is a part of the Osiris Podcast Network.